today's episode. Having spent the bulk of my 20s living my life fairly publicly online as a YouTuber, yep. um, you get very comfortable with just sharing a lot of personal information. That being said, when I was pursuing YouTube as a full-time career, I was also an actress, a comedy actress, right. and so I was very selective about what I cho cho chose to choose to share and there was always kind of an element of um there was a performative nature to it mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is like a lot of what i shared it was it was a version of taryn it was like a, a, a sort of a, a heightened personality but i wasn't sharing everything about my life and right. it wasn't until curated right very much a curated version of this persona that you were playing Correct. Very curated. And, but I, but all nonetheless became more and more comfortable. When I first started YouTube, I looked at it as I'm showing up and playing a character that's based on myself. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Eric Custer. Decisiveness to be different. If I had to summarize our, my entire conversation with Taryn Southern, that would be it decisiveness to be different. And I think especially in a world that wants us to conform and wants us to be like everyone else, Taryn has really embraced this idea of constantly reinventing herself to be different. Starting with the fact as a young aspiring actress, not getting parts that she wanted and not getting enough of them, she decided to try this brand new crazy little platform at the time called YouTube and has set off on a journey that really has established her as a YouTube star. Uh, more than a billion people have viewed her videos uh, on YouTube and other platforms and she's continued to reinvent herself, moving from that into platforms studying technology, uh, having a documentary out about technology and the future of artificial intelligence. It's been an award-winning documentary and producing music uh, using tools like artificial intelligence to push herself as a musician. I think if you really did want to understand something about Taryn, it is that desire to be different and a decisiveness around it. We talked a lot about her openness and the willingness to share, being vulnerable and being optimistic. One of the stories that we discussed was her kind of open document, documenting of her journey to freeze her eggs. As, as, a, as a woman, um, kind of moving into the later part of her 30s, she realized that she didn't yet have a partner, but she also didn't want to kind of close the chapter on her having children. And so she went through this very public process to freeze her eggs. And in fact, the timing of it actually helped her find that she had cancer, a battle that she has been fighting for the last two years and now is successfully, thankfully, in remission for that one. So I think her story of just perseverance and optimism along the way was powerful. But, but I think that this idea of she's constantly challenging herself to experiment, uh, to show that sort of decisiveness, to learn to be different and to stand out, and always being proud that she keeps persisting through these changes and these challenges along the way. It is an inspiring conversation. She's an inspiring woman and someone who I think has continued to focus on putting good in the world. We're so grateful that she stopped by to hang out with us. Uh, but I think understanding that like in today's world, the world pushes you to conform and the more you remain decisive and committed to being different in your own version of different, the better you'll be off, uh, off. And at the end of the day, if you recognize that if nothing else, the world is looking for more optimistic, hopeful stories. So put yours in the world and that will do good things for you. Taryn Southern, ladies and gentlemen, uh, an incredible woman who has incredibly done, done incredible things and reinvented herself along the way. I think you're going to learn a lot from the conversation, particularly 
persistence in being yourself is the answer that all of us need to seek. Terrence Hunter, ladies and gentlemen. We're so glad to, to have you. And I love the bullhorn or the bull head right above you here. You can see that right there. I might, I might be in Texas. <laughs> How are you managing 2020 with all the things going on personally and globally here? Yeah, it's been an interesting year for sure. I think everyone's had their own bizarre experience with COVID in some form or another. As Eric, mine is probably, it's, it's a little unique in that I, I was forced to quarantine for about nine months prior to the actual quarantine that happened. Right. So this week is my one year remission mark. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. For breast cancer. And that, yeah. Bob, I, I, I kept, I, I, so you, for those of you who are, the in, inside joke here is that Taryn named the lump Bob, which was the, the lump in your breast was named Bob. And so we all were like anti-Bob for a long time. <laughs> yeah. 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 My friends actually made a book that, pardon my French, but it was the, the Fuck Bob book. And it was like all about destroying Bob. And we destroyed Bob. We did it. So Bob is no more. And I, I feel great. Good. So in many ways, as, as frustrating as COVID was, because it basically happened right on the tail end of me finishing radiation. Right. And I was ready to re-enter the world. <laughs> and the world had other plans as it, as it happens. But it's actually been a really nice year for me to collect myself and really focus on my health and my energy and what kinds of creative projects I want to focus on for the next bit of time. So it's been really nice, actually. And I was going to, one of the things I just, you know, and I said this to you before, I've been such a fan of you as living your truest self in public. I think it's been, you're such, what's so interesting about you is you just are you, right? And I, I remember we were chatting at one point about the sort of decision for you to freeze your eggs and the decision to do it and document it for other people and just the outpouring of people saying, thank you. Because talk a little bit about your experience here with, again, health is one of these things and these concepts that are scary. Here you are documenting your experience, freezing your eggs and that documenting experience going through cancer. Why? And how have you done that so authentically? So I don't know how much context you gave your students leading into the call, but having spent the bulk of my 20s living my life fairly publicly online as a YouTuber, um, you get very comfortable with just sharing a lot of personal information. That being said, when I was pursuing YouTube as a full-time career, I was also an actress, a comedy actress. And so I was very selective about what I chose to to share. And there was always an element of, there was a performative nature to it. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, a lot of what I shared, it was a version of Taryn. It was like a, a, a sort of a, a heightened personality, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sharing everything about my life. Right. And it wasn't until... Curated, right? Very I, much a curated version of this persona that you were playing. Correct. Very curated. And, but, I, but all nonetheless became more and more comfortable. When I first started YouTube, I looked at it as I'm showing up and playing a character that's based on myself. Hmm. And as I became more entrenched, in part people started watching vlogs a lot more than sketch right. comedy videos. And that just became the norm. And so I had to become a little bit more comfortable sharing parts of myself. Mm-hmm. By the time I was pretty much completely comfortable sharing anything and everything. And so when I decided to freeze my eggs, I thought, why not? Why not share this? It's one of those things at the time that it, 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 this was like four or five years ago, four years right. ago, it felt a little bit provocative to be yeah. talking about that. Yep. Um, now, I don't know if people would blink an eye, but 
at the time it felt like a big deal. It was, the, it was the when you did when you came out and started talking about this experience. It was the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about it as publicly and also as very authentically as you. It's a crazy conversation to think through that you and you talked about your decisions to do it. As much as it's yeah. normative for you, I do think that there's a lot of people that still find that to be one of those things that it's it takes a little bit of bravery. Have you? Have you, over this last sort of two or three years now that you've been talking more about yourself, have you seen the way people engage with you differently, the, the more vulnerable and open you've been? A hundred percent. Yeah. Every time you're afraid to share something, is it's usually the case that it's the thing that you're most afraid to share that, that will strike the greatest chord in the, in the largest number of people. Mm-hmm. And so that, I know that sharing that information was incredibly helpful for a lot of women because I had mm-hmm. many of them reach out. And what was super interesting was that the video uh, that went up on Facebook around my egg freezing, I think it ended up getting 9 million views, something like that. Wow, it's crazy. Um, I know, and it was really bizarre, but it had a very low ratio of um, likes and comments. But what we were able to see in the data was the, the massive volume of that video being shared privately through Facebook message. So what was happening, women didn't necessarily want to like it publicly or comment on it publicly because they didn't want that showing up in their feeds letting people know that they're contemplating this, but they were sharing it with their other female friends who they were having these private conversations with. Hmm. And that's when you know you're sharing something that, that maybe people need to, yeah. to hear. And that's ironically, crazy. that also ended up being the best decision of my entire life to freeze my eggs because I, once I was diagnosed with cancer, I don't think I would have been able to freeze them because I had the type of cancer where you don't want to be injecting yourself with hormones and right. pouring gasoline on the fire. It was a weird thing that I lived that publicly. And then it turns out that's, that's probably the only way that I'll be able to have kids <laughs> is through those, through those eggs. Yeah. That's amazing. That's just a great story. So I want to take, you know, back a little bit. And again, it's interesting as I was like trying to even prepare, telling your bio is like, you're this like inv- reinvention machine. If I were to, if I were to describe your like last two decades, it's just this constant sense of reinventing yourself. And you've done it over these multiple times here. Take us through a little bit of that journey here where you get this start here, you're a performer, and you suddenly realize there's this trend happening of, like you said, you talked about people using you know, YouTube differently. You were early. Like now kids want to be like YouTubers. You were like in YouTube before it was cool to be a YouTuber. How did that journey happen to where you found yourself living your life in this sort of new area, this new career? Thank you. And by the way, is this gardening noise irritating? We can't even hear it, so you're good. Zoom. I love Zoom. They've done a great job (laughs) with their audio. So, yeah, I started YouTube before you could even make money on YouTube. There was no such thing as an AdSense program. So it was really just, um, it was like a creative outlet for me to make videos when I wasn't getting booked on television shows. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the freedom and the fun and the creative expression and the opportunity to reach a lot of people was so exciting at that time. Mm -hmm. It was also a little bit of a faux pas in the world of entertainment mm-hmm. to be uploading on YouTube because it was seen like as lesser than, right. which I found inherently exciting because I just like <laughs> doing things that are, that are against the rules. So I uploaded my first video in 2007. Wow. And yeah, like way back when. And that was, actually, that was not a, we didn't even know what this thing uploading was by that point. Like that was like Dropbox wasn't really even a thing by then. <laughs> you know, like crazy. It was very early and it was actually, <laughs> it was a, it was a comedy song that was like a love song for Hillary Clinton when she was like up for the primaries at mm-hmm. that time against mm-hmm. Obama. Yep. And it was like a satire of this Obama girl song. Right. And the, the video went viral and it landed me on all of these political talk shows like Hardball mm. and MSNBC, CNN, et cetera. 
And I had, I, I know nothing, or at least then I knew nothing about politics. Right. I, I just made the video for fun or to be funny. And all of a sudden I was getting offered correspondence jobs from, I actually was offered a job with Fox News, which was hysterical. Really? Yeah, That's as a political course. On tombstone one day. <laughs> so wild. But now, it was very clear to know there's a lot of power behind this. Even if some of the traditional gatekeepers in Hollywood look down on this kind of engine, the, the ability to reach all these people, it's like, it's, it's an audition tape in front of the world and right. it could present a lot more opportunities if I just keep doing more of what I love. So I, so that was the, the, that was what clicked for me. I started making videos, but it was all sort of comedy stuff. And then within five, six years, it beca- YouTube became a certifiable career. Right. And I was working a lot in television, mm-hmm. but really unhappy with the lack of ownership that I had over my career and my life. And I just wanted the creative freedom and expression. So I, I basically quit everything I was doing in hmm. television and film, went for YouTube full time, did that for four years, built a production company wow. um, that did a lot of influencer marketing and production. And then I was coming up upon 30 mm-hmm. and had been at that point doing this for quite a while and felt like it was time to, to switch course. Like mm-hmm. I, I had enjoyed the ride. It was really right. fun, but it was no longer intellectually stimulating for me. And um, I, I really wanted to sink my teeth into something that felt more aligned with some of my deeper passions and interests. And that's mm-hmm. where I really started focusing on emerging technologies and right. science. How can I, what I've learned in the digital space with these deeper passions to help people tell better stories, reach millennials. And, and that's what I've been doing for the past five years. So it's been, there's been a few major pivots yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't even, call it pivot. It's like these reinvention. It's again, because I, I think what's so interesting about you, just again, and, and it was funny because as I've been preparing for this one, I was trying to come up with a narrative, like to, you're the <laughs> storyteller, but I was trying to figure it out. But it's interesting, you, you discover something and then you learn a lot about it and suddenly you're ahead, like you're ahead of all these things, right? You were in the entertainment world and television, stuff like that. And then you just say, this is a thing here, a trend that I'm seeing here. I'm going to take advantage of it. And then this sort of, we've seen some of the waning here of some of the YouTube sort of feelings and that your point about it has been, we may have reached peak influencer on that platform. And you say, hey, there's new stories, your use of music and technology. How do you, as a as someone who is on that bleeding edge of things, how do you like find yourself learning about things? Because you learned about YouTube before YouTube was cool. You learned about VR before VR was cool. What's your style of learning differently? Thank you. I think I've always been innately curious. Mm-hmm. Um, to allow, I joke that I can go down. It, what it used to be, I would just go down these crazy Google search holes about. <laughs> now I just spend way too much time on Quora. Yeah. But I just love learning. I've always been a learner, and I was an anthropology major in college, so oh, I love studying any kind of area of human culture, human psychology. And so that's just lent itself, I think, to some of these things. And because emerging tech and, and new ideas, because they are new, there's a there's an aspect to them that's particularly appealing for me. Mm-hmm. Like how do how can I learn about a space that doesn't yet exist? Mm-hmm. And what opportunities could arise from those spaces? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the most exciting thing I can imagine doing is just mm-hmm. trying to figure out that puzzle. It's also really it it adds a lot of uncertainty into my life <laughs> sure yeah trying to work in these spaces but yeah it's really exciting and and so the past 5 years it really has been the most intellectually fulfilling right that i've ever felt in my career because i've been able to dabble in ai and vr and biotech and a little bit of everything and it's mm-hmm. i just love learning about all these spaces but mm-hmm. i don't really have a process i just 
keep my eyes peeled for certain things. And mm-hmm. just happens to be that, that frontier technology is his mm-hmm. scenario. I find really fascinating. I think you do have a process. I think your process is like you let yourself go down the rabbit hole as long as it takes to satisfy yourself. And I think that really is like a learning process that like yes. people give themselves permission to explore without knowing where it's going to go a little bit. What happens is there's, after exploring something for a bit of time, for AI, for instance, an idea pops in my head right. and then I cannot think about anything else except for pursuing that idea. So in the yep. case of AI, I did a bunch of research on all of these AI art engines. I was playing around with regenerative art. I was actually originally contemplating maybe making it like an AI museum hmm. in LA. Hmm. And then I, and then all of a sudden it came to me make to make an album using AI as the generative tool for all the music. And I was like, I have to do that. There is my soul <laughs> needs to, to, to do this experiment. And then I just go do it. And, t- yeah. and tell about, so I was going to actually just ask you that question here. You, you make this bet and people, when they probably read about it the first time, they're like, what is this thing that she's talking about here? What is this idea that she's saying about AI and music? Tell us how this happened, where you produce, I think was the first album that was co-generated, co-created with, with AI. Yeah. Again, it just came out of this curiosity thing. I was playing around with a bunch of AI tools. I was working on a project with Google. There's a grant program they have for artists Mm -hmm. and they had provided me some money to experiment with some of their VR technologies. Mm -hmm. And so the whole concept behind this VR thing I was doing was like this futuristic world. And I thought, how can I incorporate other technologies into this world? And so I was looking at AI from the art, like from the art space about how I could integrate that and stumbled upon these AI music generators started playing around with them and was so excited by the kinds of opportunities that they presented for filmmakers. Mm-hmm. That was really what excited me because as a YouTuber, finding affordable music to license for my videos was always a challenge right. and you're pumping out content very quickly. And so you need, you also want something that sounds good and has a cool vibe. And so that was where my mind first went is, oh, this is a really cool tool for content creators and filmmakers to be able to create music on a budget. And then with some further tinkering, I realized that the customization was good enough to where I could actually make something that would be, and I'm not, I am making zero claims about this album being like a a worthy, like pop album, but I knew that I could make something that would be good enough yeah. to create a conversation around yeah. what this means for the future of music and, mm-hmm. and human creativity. And, and that conversation was what excited me. Well, so we need to have, have these conversations. And you don't have to brag on it. Others have bragged and said it was uh, it, like, it was surprising how, you know, good and compelling it was. And the, the music was good. And for those of you, I will share the link to it. It is really compelling to do. And for those of people that don't, you documented a lot about your experience of what it's like to make music that process. And I think most people have maybe never thought about how an album's made. Talk us through how you describe it as like the AI augments you as a songwriter and as a creator. Talk through how that helps and then how you see this in the future. Yeah, it's like a lot of different tools. It's going to benefit some people immensely. Others will find zero uses for it. Mm -hmm. And it all comes down to the kinds of skill sets that you have. I think for people who do not have traditional music backgrounds, but, but want to try their hand at being creative, perhaps they write lyrics or perhaps they write vocal melodies, mm-hmm. but they have no way to actually produce the instrumentation behind a song. This kind of tool will enable them to actually, you know, to finish something mm-hmm. of, of, of value wherein before they would have had to have found a music producer and had the resources to pay that person. And 
Whereas like a, a traditional music producer probably would find very little use for it at this point. But I see a world very soon within the next year or two years where a lot of these tools are getting good enough to where they could, um, they could provide a lot of supplementary assistance to skilled music producers. Mm-hmm. One really obvious way is just by, by running a music producer's rough draft demo song through the mm-hmm. system and saying you're copying another artist <laughs> right um, right yeah we're comparing this against like our database of billions of music music tracks and this is a, a copy or you might contemplate a slightly different melodic structure to make the song feel more interesting mm-hmm. so i think it could end up becoming like a really helpful collaborative tool even for people who are skilled musicians mm-hmm. but it's it's like youtube in a lot of ways when i started youtube it was actually pretty hard to make videos. Editing software was not the way it is now. We didn't have these really cheap, high-end video cameras. Sound Mm -hmm. was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You had to sync your sound with your video. It's a totally different world. But as things became cheaper and these new tools came out, we started seeing all these new people learning the process of making videos and um, editing these videos. And there's an argument that it could take away work from professional director of photographies, but Mm -hmm. it hasn't really. It's just opened up more opportunities for creativity to exist and created new formats and all kinds of things. So I think the same thing will happen with these AI tools. That's cool. Uh, you know, yeah. we, this, with this group here, there's a lot of folks writing books and the same sort of things. There's these critiques about new tools and new frameworks and stuff like that, like this, the purest argument behind it. Like, how do you like push past those? Because there's people who say, oh, that's not how it's typically done, or that's not how, you know, it's done in the industry or like... How do you teach yourself to tune out that noise and keep pushing forward? Because you're typically early in these things. Like, it's not a known path that's going to work out. Yeah, I mean, to be totally candid, I I usually don't trust people who say, that's not the way you do things. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, it's not the way you do things until now (laughs) or until it changes. Everything goes through this evolutionary process. And I think anyone who is, is overly committed to a certain process, while that's beautiful and there's, there is value to that, I, I, it's just not a value I subscribe to. And mm-hmm. I find so much more interestingness in the unknown and the experimentation and like the open playing field of saying, why not? Why can't things right. be different? Right. Yeah. And so Bill, so, I want the next question. So I, I want to be respectful. I got a plane to catch here, but no, I want to ask. Fine. Quick, I'm totally good at okay, cool. I want to ask a quick question about that leading into that one. You produced a documentary that came out that was so well reviewed and pushed on the envelope here that really, in some ways, encapsulates all the work you've been doing here about the future of human augmentation, human intelligence, these places about it. Tell us about this documentary because it was a fascinating experience to get to see this come out in the conversation it sparked. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, so I was actually working on the documentary while working on the album, and the album ended up taking a back seat as my role with the documentary became larger. But the documentary is called I Am Human, and it follows three patients with implantable brain interfaces. And through their journeys, we explore the larger implications of neurotechnology in the broader world and what it will mean to be human over the next 10, 15 years as we start to augment and change our brains. So it was, it was a really big undertaking. It required a lot of trust on behalf of the institutions and the patients that we were working with. And I am not a neuroscientist, obviously. So to come in and, and direct the project and, 
and direct and produce was a was a really big challenge, but super exciting. Mm -hmm. And the big thing that we were focused on doing from the very beginning was how do we tell a story that is not dystopic? Right. And it's right. not because there aren't dystopic elements to it that are not deserving of, of attention. And we do go into some of those issues in the film, but actually making a dark sci-fi film about the future, that's the easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and there are so many amazing possibilities that, mm -hmm. that present themselves out of this technology, but those aren't the ones that are front and center in news headlines. It was challenging. We, we had to create several rough cuts of the film to get to a place where we felt really confident that we were telling authentic stories that were really like the result of these patients' experience and also not um, ignoring the larger, like scarier issues. So mm -hmm. it was a really interesting undertaking. And I, I try to take that approach with, with everything that, I work in, that I'm working on. Is there a story of optimism here? In part, just because we need more optimistic stories. Right. Right. Not to say that we shouldn't have really sharp commentary and critique, but there's just not enough, there's not enough storytelling out there that gives people like a map, a, a mm -hmm. direction that, that we can aspire to and mm -hmm. feel good about. And that was really important. And so as someone who does so much, you've been doing storytelling in every aspect along the way here. We've got a bunch of authors here who are writing books and telling stories. How do you encourage them to think about it? And how do you with that process of balancing the telling information, but making sure there's a story in it that gives us hope and humanity. What's the things that you teach, share, and, and, and apply in your own work? Ooh, that is such a good question. That's a big question. I know it's a big one, I, it's, uh, it's, but it's, it's the question, right? It's interesting. I, have, I guess I have a little bit of an anecdote that might represent that question. I, when the quarantine hit, um, or when, the, when COVID hit and we were in quarantine, and I realized that my speaking career for this year was over, that was really what I was going to be focused on. I decided to sit down and actually finally write a book proposal cool. around a book that I had been thinking about doing for a while. And I think we actually might have spoken. I don't remember if it was this exact book that, that we spoke about, but mm -hmm. I did uh, and, um, finished the proposal, ended up pitching it to all of the major publishers and did not sell it. My, my agent that I had representing me has never not had a client sell a book. So I will <laughs> just say right now, the first client of her did not get a, a book offer in auction, which was disappointing. Sure. But, um, but I learned a whole lot from the process. And something that ended up happening was one of the publishers circled back around and said, you know what, we would be interested in a version of the book that's, that's, that's basically removed the transformational positivity <laughs> from hmm. it. So the book was basically peeling back the curtain on the world of digital influence. Mm -hmm from the stories of early influencers who, right. are, who are including my own story. But my whole angle was using those stories to help people better navigate their own digital presence in a way mm -hmm. that's empowering and that is not extractive from their lives. And this publisher, which is a pretty big publisher and exciting one to potentially work with was like, we want just the, we just want the, the tell all expose. Interesting. We don't care about the positive part. And I really, I thought on, I sat on it for a while and I even started reworking the proposal just to see could I do a version of this book that feels good that's just really sharp social commentary and ultimately for me I just I was like it, this isn't for me I really want to be able to tell a story that provides positive takeaways for people because otherwise I don't know we already have the what was that documentary that just came out the social social dilemma yeah yeah and it's just like darkness darkness right, and it's right. like, what are we gonna do about it we get it right. we're all we're all so I don't know if that answers your question other than no, I think it's great. 
I didn't really talk about, about how I structure my writing around that, but I think it's just, it's an important, it's a part of my value system to, to want to improve people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so as part of that, I need to be able to have this positive element. I need to be able to, and it's like for my own good too. Cause like, right. Right. I, you know, I, I, I need these things for myself. And part of the reason I tell these stories is so that I can find positive values from yep. my own lessons. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So we always do something fun here at the end. So first off, thank you so much. This is super interesting and helpful. Any words of wisdom for the crew who's out there creating and battling their own imposter syndrome, putting good in the world here? What's your last words of wisdom here? It's probably similar to what a lot of people say on here, but you got to just keep going and don't failures are actually like the best thing that could ever happen to you because they're all just lessons in, in, in cultivating resilience and what you want. And you just have to stay really persistent with your vision. I cannot tell you how many times I've been turned down, rejected, lost jobs that were dream jobs. It's just working in entertainment, you get really good at just being perpetually unemployed and rejected. And it's a fabulous skill to learn. So the, the better you can get at it, the better your life will be. And just don't let anyone stop you from going after the thing that you're really passionate about. And don't be afraid to go down the rabbit hole. I think that's the other lesson I'll take away from you. Is yes, like, just yes. Go down the rabbit hole as long Eric, as it takes you. And I love this class because you're just, you, you, people are writing books. Like there's, you're not letting anyone stop you from this process. And I think that's really exciting. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Thanks again, Have a good Tara. One, everybody. Thanks everyone for hanging out today. Take care. Bye, Bye. everybody.